Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia on TalkShoe. It is Friday, July 15th, 2011. I was just commenting before the program that I've been doing this for 31 months. Actually, it's 31 months in a week, but who's counting? Uh, I just can't believe how fast the time has flown. It, it's just flying. It's going by in the blink of an eye every year. Okay, I have good news. I announced last week that Don Elmore had had a serious stroke and, and the people around him, he had had a minor stroke several years ago and the people around him had um, believed that's what it was, was a serious stroke. That's what the original diagnosis is. The good news is he did not have a serious stroke. He did, however, have a severe blood pressure incident and it took several days to stabilize and and... I spoke to him seven hours ago, and he was fine. And of course, he'll be—you know—we'll have—he'll have to watch. But he was fine, and and we praise Yahweh and thank Yahweh for that, and and pray all the best for Pastor Elmore. Last week, we discussed once more the Canaanite woman of Matthew chapter fifteen, and why Joshua healed her daughter giving historical citations and explaining the historical climate and the cultural and social climate at the time. Then we discussed the sign of Jonah, the leaven of the Pharisees. The apostles believed that Yahshua was the Christ, as well as the expectation of the coming of the Messiah, which was prevalent in Judea at that time. We also saw that Joshua's statement to Peter is really, you are a stone, and upon the bedrock will I establish my church or my assembly or my ecclesia. It means nothing like the Catholic church supposes or wants us to believe that it means, right? We also touched upon the gates of Hades, the, the, the phrase, the gates of Hades and the belief in life after death as it was held by all the branches of our race, all the ones that left us records anyway. And that's evident again in the event known as the Transfiguration of the Mount, that, that we really do have a, a life apart from this world and this body, so long as we are children of God. We also saw the non-scriptural belief of Herod and the others in Judea in reincarnation, and we discussed what was meant by John the Baptist having come in the spirit of Elijah. Then we discussed at length what Christ meant when he said that if one desires to come behind me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We saw, as we presented for an example, how Germany's Christian government under Adolf Hitler actually built that precept into their political philosophy that an individual should live for the sake of his nation and devote his life to its well-being. That's much more important than the individual's interests, and that's what the individual owes to his kin, to his progeny, to his brethren, and to his ancestors. If we all live in such a manner, that we put 
the interest of our kinsmen ahead of our own, then we would have heaven indeed. Very importantly, last week we also saw that the restoration of all things is in Scripture, in Malachi, and in the words of Christ, the restoration of the children of Yahweh to the recognition of the covenants of their fathers, and in the content of Scripture, it is nothing more in the context of Scripture. I'm sorry. It is nothing more than that. A lot of universalists in Christian identity, and yes, we have universalists in Christian identity, plenty of them. A lot of them somehow try to use this phrase, taken out of context, to promote their lies so that they can make excuses for the non-Adamic races. But they cannot do so with any honesty, and they may as well be Catholics. Christ said that the Elijah who is to come shall restore all things, and when we read of the prophecy of him in Malachi, which Christ is referring to, all we see is the restoration of Israel to their rightful place in the covenants and the polity of God. That's the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things between Israel and God, and nothing more than that. Speaking about fast and loose scriptural interpretations, I'm going to pick on Eli James. Imagine that. Again, he deserves it. I'm going to read a quote, a paragraph that he wrote from the latest edition of the New Ensign. This is on the Christogenia Forum. I'm sorry I don't have the link at hand. Maybe somebody could come up with it. It's under miscellaneous banner, under a post I made on the Christogenia Forum, which, which announces that Eli James is a universalist. Yeah, you know, in this in, in this New Ensign magazine, Eli says that the, the perfidious Jew, the hybrid race of the fallen angels, will finally be wiped off the face of the earth. And, and he says it's what's the what's the Bible is teaching. Well, well, I would agree with that. That's fine. That, that's exactly what the Bible does teach. Eli, that's good. Except that your mistake is to imagine that the fallen angels created only the perfidious Jew. And, and that's a huge mistake. Eli goes on to um, try, try to um, pick on Clifton Emmerheiser a little bit. And, and, and he says, if Mr. Emmerheiser has a different interpretation of Matthew 15, 23 through 29, let him declare himself. Well, well I gave the, that my interpretation last week, right? And, and the week before, and I proved it from history and, and from the cultural context of the time. I showed it from documents pertinent to the age, from quotes from historians, demonstrating the customs of Rome, which are the customs that Christ lived by, which is also demonstrable in Scripture. He submitted himself to the society while he was here, which is demonstrable in Scripture. Eli goes on to say, by the way, that passage concludes with the words, O woman, great is your faith, be it given unto you even as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour, even though she was a dog and not an Israelite. They're Eli's words. Eli is confusing the faith of the woman with the faith of God and Abraham. It, it's two different faiths, right? 
Eli goes on to say, would that all of true Israel had had that kind of faith. Yahshua did not say to her, go to hell, you're a Canaanite. Well, well, I explained why he did that, or why he did not do that. Given what I know about Jews, these are Eli's words. Given what I know about Jews, however, I doubt that more than one-tenth of one percent will bend the knee to Yahshua Messiah. And those who will, who do, will have a very high percentage of white DNA as opposed to viper DNA. They're Eli's words. Whoever said that Jews were supposed to bend the knee to Yahshua Messiah? That, that's what I'd like to know. And, and whoever says that they could? Get away from me, I never knew you. Remember that line? Aside from that, yeah, you know, let's talk about this phrase, bend the knee. Because we see how these universalists take the phrase, the restoration of all things, and, and they take it, and they lift it out of context, and they run with it. Well, Eli's doing the same thing with this idea of bending the knee. He takes this phrase, he lifts it out of context, and he's running with it. He imagines, and he, he just can't slam the door shut on the Canaanites. Yahweh says that, the day is coming when there won't be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord, period. I don't think that they'll be able to bend their knees at that point in time. Quoting Zechariah chapter 12. The only place this phrase, bend the knee, appears... in Scripture, in this context, is where Paul quotes it in Romans 14.11 and in Philippians 2.10. Of course, Paul, his letters prove, is writing to Israelites. Paul knows that he is writing to Israelites. Paul is quoting Isaiah 45:23, and I quote, and I'll read from Isaiah 45:21 to Isaiah 45:25. Tell ye and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. The entire context of the last 25, 26 chapters of Isaiah. Tell the story of the children of Israel in the dispersion in the isles and coastlands of the West. And how they are going to be gathered and... They will be saved, redeemed, preserved by Yahweh. And this is what Isaiah is talking about here. Isaiah 45, 23. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. There's that line. It's the only time it appears in this context in the Old Testament that every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall swear, as Paul quotes, Romans 14:11. Surely shall one say, in Yahweh have I righteousness. No Jew has righteousness in Yahweh, period. 
No Canaanite has righteousness in Yahweh, period. Nobody with any percentage of viper DNA has righteousness in Yahweh, period. Surely shall one say, in Yahweh have I righteousness and strength, even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel, all the offspring of Israel, be justified and shall glory. That's Isaiah chapter 45. The context of the phrase, every knee shall bow, which Paul quotes twice, has only to do with the children of Israel. It is treachery to try to take that phrase and apply it to anybody of the other races, to anybody with viper DNA, to anybody that's a Jew. Eli just can't slam the door shut on his people. I wonder why. That's all I'll say about that. It fully demonstrates exactly how fast and loose he is with Scripture. He doesn't care if it fits his agenda at the time he repeats it. Matthew chapter 18. In that hour, the students came forth to Yahshua, saying, So who is greater in the kingdom of the heavens? And summoning a child, he stood him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, if you would not turn back and become as the children, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of the heavens. I would say, and Clifton's pointed this out a long time ago, the children have no egos, no pretensions, and no agendas. Children are generally not cognizant of sin, and they have clean minds and consciences, unspoiled by the vices of this world. It was said of Adam and Eve before the transgression that, quote, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. We see that quality in children, right? Genesis 2.25. They came to no shame through sin. In Genesis 3.7, after the transgression, we see that the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons in their attempt to conceal the instruments of their crime. Verse 4. Therefore, he who would humble himself as this child, as I said, children have no egos, no pretensions. He is greater in the kingdom of the heavens. Very often, when our brethren learn the importance of God's law, they begin campaigns against what sin it is that they themselves were the most guilty of transgressing. Sometimes they do so to the point of becoming pharisaical and wanting to rule over the households of their brethren. This is not humbling yourself like a child. Rather, it is seeking to become a judge of the law. While the Apostle James said, Speak not evil of one another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are a doer of the law, but not a, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And in that manner, Paul told the Romans, chapter 16, verse 16, 
I do wish that you are to be wise as to good and uncontaminated as to evil. We should humble ourselves. We shouldn't seek to rule over our brethren. There's a huge difference. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul explains the relationship between the law, sin, and the sinner. And here it shall be cited in part from verse 19, and I quote, I do not wish that I practice good, but that I do not wish evil, this I practice. But if that which I do not wish, this I do, no longer is it I perpetrating in it, perpetrating it, but the fault or the sin dwelling in me, we all have urges that at times we cannot overcome. It's that simple. I find then the law which wishes me to practice virtue because evil is present with me. Indeed, I rejoice in the law of Yahweh in accordance with the inward man. But I see another law of my members, the law of hormones, I would call it, battling against the law of my mind and leading me captive to the law of error or sin, which is in my members. I am a miserable man who will deliver me from this body of death. We know that we sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, eight. So we humble ourselves before man and before God. We admit our errors when it is proper, and we seek his mercy his mercy, but we do not become Pharisees of the law. Galatians chapter 6, my translation. Brethren, even if a man should already be caught up in some transgression, you, those of the Spirit, restore such a man in the spirit of meekness, watching yourself, lest you also may be tested. Here Paul, in verse 2, asks a rhetorical question, which the King James misses, right? Should you bear one another's burdens and in that manner fulfill the law of the anointed? In other words, we should not have to bear the burdens of one another's egos. For if anyone supposes to be something, being nothing, he deceives his own mind. So each must scrutinize his own work, and then he has a boast to himself only and not to another. When we overcome our lusts or our sin, we should not boast about it to others. Verse 5, for each will bear his own load, in other words, the burdens of his own ego, he who is being instructed in a word must share in all good things with he who is teaching without being a Pharisee. Do not be deceived. Yahweh is not mocked. Indeed, whatever a man should sow, that he shall also reap. In other words, you want to rule over your brethren by the law. You shall be judged by the law. It's that simple. Because he who is sowing for his own flesh, in other words, self-righteously justifying himself in his boasts of righteousness, from the flesh he shall reap destruction. But he who is sowing for the Spirit 
loving one's brethren, and seeking to live after the true and merciful will of God. From the Spirit shall he reap life eternal. Now we should not waver from doing well, for in due time we shall reap without failing. So then, while we have occasion, we should work it good towards all, but especially towards those of the family of the faith, the Christian Israelites, out of all the others of our race. Remember when Paul wrote, there were a lot of white non-Israelites in the world. Not so many as to, there are not so many today. Verse 5, Matthew chapter 18. And he who would receive one such child upon whom is my name receives me. When we serve our brethren, and especially the children and those who are the most helpless among us, we serve Christ as well. Christ also said this of the apostles at Matthew 10, verse 40. He receiving you receives me, and he receiving me has receives he, he who sent me. Verse 6. But he whom would offend one of these little ones who believes in me, in other words, he's only talking about the children of Israel, of course, it is better for him that a millstone would be hung around his neck and he'd be drowned in the depths of the sea. Those stones were rather large stones, right? That They're the stones that the oxen drew around the mill to crush the wheat on the floor of the mill, right? Woe to society because of offenses. Indeed, it is a necessity for offenses to come. Note that. It is a necessity for offenses to come. But woe to that man through whom the offense comes. I don't even like my own translation of this. And that's because the word for offense is scandalon. It's hard to quantify in, in English in a, in, in a simple word. It, it's not sin or transgression. Rather, it can alternatively be interpreted as either a scandal so we see that the origin of the English word is in the Greek word. Or a trap. That's what a scandalon is most literally, is a trap. It is commonly a trap, but it is often used in the New Testament period in the context of something which offends or especially which causes offense to somebody else. It was difficult for me to choose a word here which reflects the full Greek meaning of the term. I may have done better to translate it, traps which cause offense, and that may be a much better understanding of Christ's intended meaning here. That's why translations really do need notes, right? In Luke chapter 17, verse 1, right after Christ gives the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke records this discourse. Then he said to his students, it is impossible for scandals not to come. Or, as I just said, it is impossible for traps which cause offenses not to come. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone is placed around his neck and he were cast into the sea then he should be offended by the least one of these, meaning the children. 
Watch yourselves. If your brother should do wrong, admonish him, and if he should repent, forgive him. And if on each of seven days he should do wrong to you, and seven times should turn to you saying, I repent, you forgive him. Little children, I must say, grow up into sometimes offending or even often often offending brethren. And with that, I will continue with Matthew chapter 18, verse 8. Now, if your hand or your foot entraps you, chop it off and cast it from you. It is good for you to enter into life crippled or lame, enter into life, meaning when you die, that's when you're entering into life. Then having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye entraps you, take it out and cast it from you. It is good for you with one eye to enter into life than having two eyes to be cast into Gehenna for the fire. Gehenna was the dump at which time they burned their trash in Jerusalem. It's the same place that in the early days they sacrificed children. Watch that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their messengers in the heavens at all times look upon the face of my Father who is in the heavens. And so we see the idea of a guardian angel there, right? The phrase, if your hand or your foot entrap you, and if your eye entraps you, the verb is from the Greek word skandalizo. It's the same It's a verbal form of the noun, scandalon, that we just discussed really means a trap that causes offense, right? The content throughout this paragraph is still in reference to the harming of one of the children of Yahweh. And these words cannot appropriately be taken out of that context, as so many so-called pastors are wont to do. While at Matthew 12:31, Christ said that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, and that includes fornication. I mean, a lot of people hate to hate to think of that, but it's very clear in the scriptures that one can repent from fornication, even though we would rather throw our brother into the lake of fire, and that's a topic for another time. I'm I'm responding to things that I see in a chat room. If you can repent from fornication, you can repent from fornication. That's just the way it is. He who is offended in any one point of the law is guilty of the whole law. While at Matthew 12, 31, Christ said that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men, which I believe is the promotion of race mixing. And not simply the idiot that falls into the trap of race mixing that somebody else said. Here we see that those who harm their brethren will be dealt with severely. Christians are commanded to love their brethren, 1 John 4.21. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God love his brother also. There is a huge difference between those of us who are weak and who commit transgressions 
and those of us who create traps that cause offenses. And they are the people that Christ is referring to here. On my Monday Open Forum this coming Monday, I'm going to present a paper I wrote several years ago, and plan, I'm planning to discuss Sin and the First Epistle of John, which I believe helps to clarify that difference, the difference between the sinner and his relationship to the law and to God, as contrasted to those who actually lay traps that their that their brethren or their enemies not talking about the the enemies of God that we get caught up in and we'll find when we examine who it is who's laying the traps that we get caught up in you will almost always find the enemies of God and not your brother that's just a fact of life in history Verse 12, Matthew 18. What do you suppose? If there should be with some man a hundred sheep, and one among them should go astray, would he not leave the ninety-nine sheep upon the mountains, and going, seek that which is astray? And if he should happen to find it, truly, I say to you that he rejoices over it more than for the ninety-nine not having gone astray. Likewise, there is no desire before my Father, who is in the heavens, that one of these little ones be lost. Did those little ones not grow up to be adults? And not one of them would be lost. Then we are reassured once again by the scriptures that all of the offspring of Israel shall indeed be preserved. Not one of our race shall be lost. There's another parable here. Christ was found in Judea to save the one sheep, allegorically, as opposed to the 99 who were already in Europe and who wandered through all the mountains, as one can read in Ezekiel chapter 34. And at that time, the enemy had little influence over them. This idea is repeated in John 10, verse 16, where it says, And the other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Verse 15. Now if your brother should do you wrong, you must go censure him between you and him only. If perhaps he should hear you, you have gained your brother. But if he should not hear, take with you one or two besides, in order that, by the mouth of two witnesses or three, is every matter established. And if he should ignore them, tell it to the assembly. The following two paragraphs are from my paper. Misconceptions Concerning Paul and the Church, which is available at Christagania.org. And I quote, all men of age, which is 20 years, according to Numbers chapter 1, verse 3, all men of age in a Christian community are equals, for example, see 
1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 26, and James verse two, chapter 2, verse 1 forward. With a certain amount of deference given to those who are older than us, who are upright members of the community, 1 Peter 5, 5. As we have seen, an elder or an overseer is not a lord or a boss, but a leader who teaches by example. The verb rendered to rule in the King James at Romans 12.8 and at 1 Timothy 3.4, 3.5, and 5.17, that verb is proistami and means merely to lead, govern, preside, direct, or manage. It is most literally to stand before and not to rule, for which there are many other Greek terms. As the organized church would have it of their appointed bishops, they would rather see it be translated to rule, but that is something that Paul certainly did not recommend. We have also seen that a minister is not an authority figure, but is a servant. A minister is not a preacher who orders people around, but maybe a teacher or a proclaimer of the word or an administrator of some other task needed by the assembly. Yahshua Christ, and by extension his word in scripture, New Testament and Old, is the only authority in a Christian assembly. All matters should be brought before the assembly and judged by the word, which shall be discussed at greater length below in the paper that I'm citing from. One important difference from the Old Testament judges, the judges' era model, is explained in 1 Corinthians 5. Those who have erred terribly should at the most be excluded from the assembly rather than condemned or stoned by the law. When they are excluded by the assembly, Yahweh will see that they are judged. I am going to cite that passage later tonight. Surely the above advice given by Paul at 2 Thessalonians 3.14, 1 Timothy 6.3, and Titus 3.10 must also be applied to every and any member of the assembly. Paul's advice being in line with the advice of Christ that an accusation must not be taken by an elder and, and that you should go to, to, a, to, an el, to a person who you have a cause with privately first and then with two or three witnesses, as we've just heard Christ state, and then bring it to the assembly when you, when, when you gain no redress from the wrong that your brother has done you. This advice has to be applied to every and any member of the assembly, including ministers and elders. And therefore, 1 Timothy 5.19 allows for an impeachment process of those elders who go astray. This must necessarily be conducted before the assembly, which would decide the issue. Officers elected by the assembly must therefore be answerable only to the assembly. In my translation of 1 Timothy 5.19, it reads thus, An accusation against an elder you must not receive except publicly, except by two or three witnesses, 
And the main difference with the King James re- version is, is the, the reading of the Greek word ekstos, which is discussed at length in my notes to my addition to Paul's letters. I, pub- I translate it publicly. It means outside to, to, to accept the accusation against an elder outside in front of everybody by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Otherwise, you don't accept the accusation. And, and my point here is to show that Paul's teaching on this manner was exactly in line with Christ's teaching and that it's important to us to know this. If your brother should do you wrong, you go to him privately first. And if he should hear you, you have indeed gained your brother. But if he should not hear you, take with you one or two besides, in other words, one or two other people, in order that by the mouth of two or three witnesses is every matter established. And if he should ignore them, meaning ignore the the counseling of the witnesses, tell it to the assembly. Then, if also he should ignore the assembly, he must be to you as the heathen and the tax collector. Thusly, I say to you, whoever you shall bound upon the earth shall be bound in heaven, and whoever you shall loose upon the earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I'm probably going to read this passage one more time tonight. On binding and loosing, and what it meant in first century Judea. And I'll start with a little bit of history. Alexander Janaeus was the king of Judea from 103 to 76 B.C. The son of John Hyrcanus, he inherited the throne from his brother Aristobulus and appears to have married his brother's widow, Salome Alexandra, according to the biblical levy rate marriage. So Alexander became the high priest when his brother died, and he also took his brother's wife to wife, according to the biblical law of the levy rate marriage, where you raise up seed to his brother, to your brother. His Hebrew name was Jonathan, hence the Greek form Janaeus. It may have been he who was the high priest Jonathan rather than his great uncle of the same name, who was said to have established the fortress at Masada. He is said to have, he is said to be depicted as an evil tyrant in the Talmud, probably because of his conflicts with the Pharisees. Let me note that Josephus records the existence of the sects of the Pharisees to at least 144 B.C. and perhaps earlier, affirming its existence at this very time of, of um, at, at the very time of this Jonathan the high priest, who was this Alexander Janius's great uncle. Alexander became the wife, the, Alexandra, the wife of Alexander Janius. His wife became the queen regent when he died, a post which he held for nine years after his death. And therefore we see at this time that the um, the Judeans had already adopted many worldly traditions which are not sanctioned in Scripture. Now that we have that background, 
Oh, I'm sorry. During the time of Alexander's rule, as Josephus attests, the Pharisees are the de facto rulers of Judea. And now that we have that background, the following is from Josephus' Wars. Book 1, lines 102 to 112. I'm sorry, 107 to 112. Now, Alexander left the kingdom to Alexandra, his wife, and depended upon it that the Judeans would now very readily submit to her because she had been very averse to such cruelty as he treated with them and had opposed his violation of their laws and had thereby got the goodwill of the people. Nor was he mistaken as to his expectations, but his woman kept the dominion by the opinion that the people had of her piety, for she chiefly, chiefly studied the ancient customs of her country and cast those men out of the government that offended against their holy laws. We see whenever a woman is put in this position, it's a reproach in Scripture to the men of the time. Yahweh is telling the men that they're not worthy of the leadership, right? And because she had two sons by Alexander, she made her Canis the Older high priest. On account of his age, and also besides that on account of his inactive temper, in no way disposing him to disturb the public. Let me say that that Hyrcanus was the last high priest. Herod ended up killing him. But she retained the younger Aristobulus with her as a private person by reason of the warmth of his temper. And now the Pharisees joined themselves to her to assist her in the government. These are a certain sect of the Judeans that appear more religious appear more religious than the others is Josephus' words. And we see that. Josephus was actually a Pharisee. And, and um, I'm surprised that he wrote that. And, and we see that Christ always told them they appeared to be religious and they weren't. And seemed to interpret the laws more accurately. Now, Alexandra listened to them to an extraordinary degree as being herself a woman of great piety toward God. But these Pharisees artfully insinuated themselves into her favor little by little and became themselves the real administrators of the public affairs. They banished and reduced whom they pleased. They bound and loosed men at their pleasure. And to say all at once, they had the enjoyment of the royal authority while the expenses and the difficulties of it belonged to Alexandra. She was a sagacious woman in the management of great affairs and intent, always gathering upon always upon gathering soldiers together so that she increased the army, the one half, and procured a great body of foreign troops till her own nation became not only very powerful at home, but terrible also to foreign potentates while she governed other people and the Pharisees governed her. So we see that Hyrcanus... This is Hyrcanus, her son, what was the last and, and a very weak, um, very weak ruler, was the last of the Maccabee line, and, and Herod slew him eventually and, and um, took the kingdom, and we see how he, what he grew up under, right? Now, what we see here is Josephus explains that binding and loosing is the... Um, the capability of the government to arrest men and, and to free them, to bind them and to loose them. And many Bible commentators love to point to this passage of Josephus' description of binding and loosing as the example 
of what Christ meant by his use of the phrase. And the Catholic Church also used it, or abused it, to claim its own temporal powers. Their claim is not legitimately Christian. This is because Christ is using the terms in the exact opposite manner in which the Judeans, referring to the worldly authority, had used the terms. So let's read again what Christ said about the unrepentant sinner, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Now, if your brother should do wrong, you must go censure him between you and him only. If perhaps he should hear you, you have gained your brother. But if he should not hear, take with you one or two others besides, in order that by the mouth of two witnesses or three is every matter established. And if he should ignore them, tell it to the assembly. Then, if he should also ignore the assembly, he must be to you as the heathens and the tax collectors. This is important, this lying and understanding what Christ meant by binding and loosing. He must be to you as the heathens and the tax collectors. Truly I say to you, whoever you shall bind upon the earth shall be bound in heaven, and whoever you shall loose upon the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, the heathens and the tax collectors were anathema to the disciples. The disciples and all of the people of Judea would have nothing to do with them because they were perceived as being evil. That is why such a display was made by the people and by the supposed authorities every time Christ was seen in the company of the tax collectors. So here, it is clear that Christ used the idea of loosing of one who should be put off from Christian communion, and he used the idea of binding as one who should be accepted into the Christian community. He used the terms, and the context proves it, in the exact opposite manner that the Pharisees used the terms, that the worldly nation used the terms. When you bind somebody, you bind them to you, when you loose them, you let them away from your community and you have nothing to do with them. And likewise, Paul, speaking of an evil and unrepentant sinner in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, explains, I had written to you in a letter not to associate with fornicators, which includes race mixers and people who engage in unseemly sexual activity. Not at all with the fornicators of this society, meaning the Jews, or with the covetous or rapacious or idolaters, seeing that you are therefore obliged to come out from the society or from the world, right? But presently I have written to you not to associate with any brother if he is being designated a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or abusive or drunken or rapacious, not even to eat with such a wretch. What is it to me to judge those outside? In other words, Paul's saying, we don't judge those outside. We don't judge those who are not in our community, okay? Not at all should you judge those within you. Not at all should you judge those who are among you. But those outside, Yahweh judges. You will expel the wicked from amongst yourselves. So if you have a brother who's harming you, who's harming members of the community, you put him out of the community. That that would be 
loosing him, right? We should loose the wicked from our communion and pray that Yahweh judges them. Perhaps they may repent, and for that reason Christ was found among sinners and tax collectors. Paul also said in Ephesians chapter 2 that Christ, having come, he announced a good message, peace to those, to you who were far away, meaning dispersed Israel, and peace to those near, meaning remnant Israel. Because of him we have both access in one we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So therefore you are no longer strangers and sojourners, meaning dispersed Israel, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of Yahweh, referring to all of Israel. Being built upon the foundation of the ambassadors and the prophets, Yahshua Christ being the cornerstone himself, in whom the whole building joined together grows into a holy temple with the prince. In which you also being built together into an abode of Yahweh in the spirit. So here we have an example of binding as Peter says in his first epistle, and yourselves as living stones are built a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Yahweh through Christ. As Paul says in Acts chapter 20 of his necessity to go in Jerusalem, and now, behold, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, and not knowing the things that shall befall me there. We seek to bind ourselves to each other in the will of Yahweh, our God. But we must loosen ourselves from our brethren who would act contrary to his will. That's what Christian binding and loosing is. Christ used the terms in the exact opposite way that the world of the time used them. And the context of the scripture proves that. Yet all the commentators try to point to Josephus and say, that's how Christ used the terms, and it's not. He used them in the exact opposite manner. Matthew 18, verse 19. Again, truly I say to you that if two from among you upon the earth should agree concerning any matter of which they should ask, it shall be brought to pass for them by my Father who is in the heavens. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Of course, our requests must nevertheless also be in accordance with the will of God. And that is the example which Yahshua himself set for us when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, as is illustrated at Matthew 26, 39, where it says, and I quote, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. He took the cup because Yahweh willed it. We pray, but we do not know his will. I must add that if we truly sought his will, we may learn what to pray for and what not to pray for. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then coming forth, Peter said to him, Prince, how many times shall my brother do wrong to me that I shall forgive him? As many as seven. Yahshua says to him, I do not say to you as many as seven, 
but as many as 70 times 7. For this reason, the kingdom of the heavens is compared to a man who was king, who had desired to take an account together with his servants. And upon beginning to take it, one had been brought to him, a debtor of 10,000 talents. That would be a lot of money. And not having it to repay, the master ordered him to be sold, and the wife and the children, and everything, whatever he has, and to be repaid. Then falling down, the servant made obeisance to him, saying, Have patience with me, and I shall repay everything to you. Then being deeply moved, the master of that servant released him, and forgave them the loan for him. That's a lot of money. And departing the servant found one of his fellow servants who owed a hundred denarii to him. That's a, that's a comparatively very small amount of money. And seizing him, he strangled him, saying, Repay anything you owe. Then falling down, his fellow servant exhorted him, saying, Have patience with me, and I shall repay you. But he did not desire it. Rather, departing, he cast him into prison until he would repay that which is owed. Therefore, seeing the things which happened, his fellow servants grieved exceedingly, and going, they explained to their master all the things which happened. Then summoning him, his master says to him, Wicked servant, I forgave you for all that debt, 10,000 talents, since you exhorted me. Had it not been necessary also for you to have mercy for your fellow servant, even as I had mercy for you. And his master, being angry with him, handed him over to the torturers until when he should repay all which is owed, because he wouldn't forgive a pittance compared to the great amount that he was forgiven. Thusly also shall my heavenly Father do to you if you would not each forgive his brother from your hearts. Yahweh forgives us of the greatest, gravest errors. As he said at Matthew 12, verse 31, and I quote, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, meaning Israelite men. Yahweh also said at Jeremiah 33, 8, and I quote, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. The servant who demands of his brethren more than his master demanded of him, he is an allegory for those people whom I liken to modern-day Pharisees. They learn the law which they themselves have transgressed, and then they forget about the forgiveness that they are to have. They take to boasting of their own righteousness in the flesh, and rather preferring to rule over their fellows with the letter of the law, even when Yahweh has promised us forgiveness and not judgment under the law. Yes, the law is important. Yes, we should seek to live by it. We should seek to live by it knowing that we are going to transgress it. The law 
is our ideal. We are all going to fall short at certain times. Matthew chapter 19. Verse 1. And it came to pass that when Yahshua had finished these words, he removed from Galilee and came into the borders of Judea across the Jordan. And many crowds had followed him, and he healed them there. Here Christ had entered into the district of Parahia, as the region east of the Jordan was called. It was still a part of the Tetrarchy that Herod had, along with Galilee. Verse 3. And Pharisees approached him, trying him and saying, Now is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any reason? And he replying, he said, Have you not read that the Creator from the beginning has made them male and female? This is a quote of Genesis 1.27. And I must note that this quote poses problems for those who hold to the sixth and eighth day creation theory, which is a heresy. Verse 5. And he said, because of this, a man shall leave father and mother and attach himself to his wife, and they shall be two into one flesh, which is a quote from Genesis 2, verse 24. So that no longer are they two, but one flesh. Therefore, that which Yahweh has yoked together, man must not separate. Yeah, you know, this two-into-one-flesh thing is, is, is um, a great mystery, right? I don't think it's a great mystery. That There are people who want to interpret something mystical in the two-into-one-flesh statement, insisting that it can only happen once to a person upon the loss of one's virginity. Yet Paul says at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Or do you not know that he joining himself to the harlot is one body. They shall be, he declares, two into one flesh. Let me say that the harlot was not a virgin. So it is evident that a man can become, quote-unquote, I'm not saying it's right, but it's possible that a man can become, quote-unquote, one flesh with a woman who has already been married to another. This is not, of course, said to permit or to promote adultery but to illustrate the proper perception of the term. Eve became one flesh with Adam, although she first bore a child from the serpent. Likewise, Hosea and the harlot that Yahweh commanded him to take to wife. Israel was an unfaithful wife. And the Levitical law prohibited Yahweh from accepting Israel after Israel played the harlot. These are the laws of adultery and of divorce found in Leviticus 20, chapter 20, verse 10, and in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. Under those laws, all of Israel should have died. If Yahweh had judged Israel by the law, not one of us would be here. But Yahweh made promises to Israel in spite of those laws, such as that found in Hosea chapter 2, verses 9 through 23, and I quote, 
and I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh, and it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith Yahweh, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall be, I'm sorry, and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth. And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. The only way that Yahweh should keep, could keep such a promise, contrary to the law, is to come here and die himself discharging Israel from the judgments of the law. That is what Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, where he states explicitly that the wife is discharged from the law of the husband upon the death of the husband. Yahweh came and died so that Israel could live because we all deserve to die. Therefore, we are discharged from the law. That doesn't mean we shouldn't hold it as an ideal and try to keep it. Yahweh will ultimately not allow a man to separate what he has joined together. Therefore, although Eve was defiled, Yahweh told her that thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. Likewise, the Pharisees, testing Christ according to Levitical law, also received their answer. It is wrong for a man to put away a wife, but the law was provided to protect the wife because it was inevitable that men would do so. The law of divorce. Therefore, Christ said at Matthew 5, verse 32, But I say unto you, that whoever shall put away his wife, saving or accept for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. You put away your wife, you cause her to commit adultery. That's important. And it is wrong for another man to marry her, but it is bound to happen, or Christ would not have stated it so. It was wrong for Adam to accept Eve after she had been defiled by the serpent. But once Adam accepted her, he was stuck with her as his wife. And Yahweh told Eve, thy desire shall be to thy husband. So unlike certain Pharisees and certain Bible clowns, Jeff Westover, Dan Kersey, when you accept a woman as your wife and you have conjugal relations with her, just because you learn the law doesn't mean that you break that relationship. That's not the example that Scripture states. If you break that relationship, 
you're doing twice as much harm. There is the divine will of Yahweh that we see in the law. And there is the permissive will of Yahweh from which we have mercy and grace and life because we all break the law. By the permissive will of Yahweh, we receive mercy for our errors. Those who would wish to interfere with their brother's lives when there is no one who is actually being harmed, they are modern-day Pharisees who think to have received mercy themselves, yet they have no mercy on their brethren. They will be treated as the wicked servant of Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 19, verse 7. They say to him, Then why had Moses instructed to give a letter for a bill of divorce and to put her away, meaning the wife? He says to them, Because Moses, for the hardness of your hearts, had permitted you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it had not been thusly. Now I say to you that he who should divorce his wife not for fornication, in other words, that's the only legitimate cause you have to divorce your wife, and should marry another, commits adultery. And of course that is true. But learning this, you do not reject the wife that you have had, making matters even worse, and for this reason, Adam kept Eve for his wife. Verse 10. His students say to him, if such is the case concerning the man with the wife, it is no advantage to marry. In other words, even the apostles didn't think this was good. Then he said to them, all do not comprehend this word, but to those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who have been born thusly from the womb of a mother. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by man. And there are eunuchs who make themselves eunuchs on account of the kingdom of the heavens. He being able to comprehend must comprehend. If you do not find a legitimate wife, it is, of course, best not to marry at all. Even the disciples of Christ obviously did not comprehend this, as we just saw at verse 10. Here I will read Paul's advice on this, and it's found at 1 Timothy 5.19, where Paul is advising Timothy on how the early Christian assemblies should treat and care for widows. And I quote, A widow must not be enrolled less than 60 years old, who had been a husband of one wife, being accredited with good works, if she had raised children, Patricia, if she was hospitable to strangers, if she washed the feet of the saints, if she succored the afflicted, if she complied in every good deed, if she lived a pious life, Paul is saying, only then was she worthy of the charity of the assembly. If she didn't do those things, she was not worthy of that charity. But younger widows you must excuse, 
For when they behave wantonly towards the anointed, meaning the men of the assembly, they desire to marry with judgment because they have set aside that former assurance. In other words, Paul is saying that it is inevitable that younger women will be enticed into sexual misconduct by their circumstances. The former assurance he mentions is the hope they have in Christ, which should be first in their lives. However, the judgment that they marry with is not necessarily eternal damnation, or Paul would be seen, as giving up all hope in these women simply because they married husbands that ran out on them, right? Rather, Paul is saying that the assembly should not be supporting such women, which leaves them little choice in the world at the time but to find husbands. And I continue my quote from Paul. And then, at the same time, they learn to be sloths, going about the houses, and not only sloths, but babblers and meddlers, Patricia, speaking unnecessary things. Therefore, I prefer younger women to marry. Here Paul is talking about those same younger widows, younger women. He didn't say younger virgins. He's talking about those same younger widows. Therefore, I prefer younger women to marry, to bear children, to rule the household, not to give any occasion to the opposition for cause of abuse. In other words, a younger woman who wasn't really a a widow, and we'll see that, should remarry or be married. Otherwise, Satan ends up with them. For already have some turned aside after the adversary. If anyone faithful keeps widows, remember that at this time it was very difficult for a woman alone who didn't have adult children supporting her to make a living. She couldn't make a living. She'd have to be forced into whoredom or some other unseemly um, practice or, or just die. If anyone faithful keeps widows, they must assist them and not burden the assembly in order that it may assist those who are really widows. In other words, those who are really widows, it is evident that many younger women were claiming to be widows who were actually probably put away instead. This passage, read carefully and in the context of the times, reveals Paul's teaching in the light of Yahweh's divine will and Yahweh's permissive will. It is better that divorced women do not remarry. If they can make it on their own, they should make it on their own. If they could find somebody to support them that they could help out without a sexual relationship, that would also be fine. But it is inevitable that at least many of them will, either out of wantonness or out of necessity. Which is why Yahshua says that the man who puts away his wife in Matthew chapter 5, causes her to commit adultery. So this is not a black and white issue that these modern-day Pharisees can rule over and claim the higher moral ground on. 
It's just not that simple. And in truth, if nobody in your community is being harmed, you have no business with your head in your brother's bedroom. Matthew 19, verse 13. Then they brought to him children, that he would lay the hands upon them and pray. But the students admonished them. And Yahshua said, Let the children go, and do not forbid them to come to me, for of such of these as these is the kingdom of the heavens. And laying the hands upon them, he had gone from there. And behold, one having come forth to him said, Teacher, what good shall I do that I would have eternal life? But he said to him, Why do you speak to me concerning good? There is one who is good. Christ here sets a clear example that we should only esteem our God as being good and the rest of us as mere men prone to error. But if you desire to enter into life, keep the commandments. He says to him, which, meaning which commandments. And Yahshua said that you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not testify falsely. Honor father and mother, and you shall love he who is near to you as yourself. In other, in other places, I've illustrated that he who is near to you or he who was your neighbor from the Hebrew meanings of the word must mean he who is of the same flock. A wolf cannot be near to a sheep, right? And neither can a dog. Of course, while all ten commandments are not vociferated here, they are elsewhere in the gospel, and they are all important. Verse 20, the young man says to him, I have kept all these things. What more do I want? Yahshua said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your belongings and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in the heavens, and come, follow me. And hearing this word, the young man departed grieving, for he was holding much property. Riches keep a man distracted from the kingdom of God. Then Yahshua said to his students, Truly I say to you, that with difficulty a wealthy man shall enter into the kingdom of heavens, the kingdom of the heavens, I'm sorry. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. And hearing it, the students were exceedingly astonished, saying, who then is able to be saved? Now remember, all these students are, are all these disciples are rather poor, right? Then looking at them, Yahshua said, with men this is impossible, but with Yahweh all things are possible. There is a story which has for several centuries been told in Christian circles that at one time Jerusalem and even other cities had a certain gate that was a special gate that was for a man to enter into at night when the main gates were closed. And so, therefore, a camel could not fit through that gate, right? And that the gate was called the eye of the needle, B. 
because of its narrowness. Well, the story is pure bunk. The story has not one shred of historical merit whatsoever. Christians love to repeat the story because it makes them sound smart, but there is not one historical or archaeological record to point to in order to show its veracity anywhere. And we have many descriptions in history of the walls of ancient cities, the gates of ancient cities. We have many descriptions of, we have a, a, a very long description of the walls of Babylon and Herodotus, of the walls of Jerusalem and Josephus, of the walls of many other cities, and no such thing as such a gate anywhere. Other writers claim that Yahshua originally used not the word camel, and the Greek and English are nearly alike, and the Aramaic and Hebrew are both very similar to the word gamel with a G, right? But a similar Aramaic word which described rope made from ha- camel hair. That, now, that's, ta- that's more plausible than the gate thing, right? But, you know, Matthew was a native Hebrew speaker. And he should have known the difference and written accordingly, there being absolutely no manuscript evidence to support this contention either. So as far as the language and the manuscripts are concerned, Christ spoke of a literal camel going through the eye of a literal needle. A rich man, of course, has usually traded away righteousness for wealth. A rich man has usually neglected the will of God in order to pursue or to keep his riches. One cannot serve God and accumulate riches. One cannot serve God and mammon, right? And if one has wealth while one's brother is hungry, what sort of steward is he concerning what God has blessed him with? And and that's why we need the mercy of our God. We all sin in one way or another, and without mercy, we are all liable to death under the law. And that's why when the apostles said, who then is able to be saved, Yahshua responded, with men this is impossible, but with Yahweh all things are possible. Verse 27. Then responding, Peter said to him, look, We have left everything and followed you. What then is there for us? And Yahshua said to them, Truly I say to you that you are those who shall be following me in the regeneration. That word, let let me dwell on that word for a second. That word regeneration in Matthew 19, verse verse 28, is paligenesia. And that word literally means born again. It literally indicates a new birth of something which existed before. Less literally, but appropriately, it can be translated a restoration or a resurrection. The usual word translated resurrection is a Greek word which literally means a raising up again. And, and that's, that, that's um, anabahino usually. The word which the King James and other versions render born again in John chapter 3 is a word which really means born from above. This word 
in Matthew twenty in, in Matthew nineteen twenty eight literally means born again, but it's not the word that Christ used in John chapter three, which was Anna Geneo, and it means to be born from above. It means something totally different. So this word is regeneration, and it means to be born again. Truly I say to you that you are those who shall be following me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit upon the throne of his honor, and you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The Revelation describes twenty-four thrones, these and twelve others, apparently for the patriarchs, yet even that does not prohibit many more thrones in addition to those 24, right? Verse 29, And each who leaves house or brother or sister or father or mother or children or farm because of my name shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit eternal life. Paul often spoke to his fellow Israelite believers, as if they were his brethren and his children. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 and 15, for instance, Paul says, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers For in Christ, Yahshua, I have begotten you through the gospel. And we see Christ support that idea. Each who leaves house or brother or sister or father or mother or children or farm because of my name shall receive a hundredfold more and shall inherit eternal life. Our real kinsmen are those of our clan, those who are Israel, who desire to follow the will of God. Our near brethren, on the occasion that they do not follow the will of God, they are not better to us than our far brethren who do follow the will of God. We, all Israelites, being cousins in the first place. And there are many more examples in Paul, but the teaching basically is that when we are all racial Israelite brethren in Christ, we're all of the same mind or close, then we have each other for brothers and sisters and fathers and, and, and daughters and sons, and not those who are simply born with us, but who do not follow his will. Instead, they're off in New York City with whores or Miami Beach with fags or, or wherever they may be. But many of the first shall be last, and the last first. Those of us who have primary positions and esteem ourselves to be somebody in this life may well be nobody in the next life. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 states, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. First, let me say that no Jew and no non-Adamite is going to be resurrected. As Paul teaches and as the Scripture teaches elsewhere, the life 
of the resurrection is given through the spirit that Yahweh breathed into Adam and into Adam only. Don't imagine that non-Adamites are going to be resurrected. So therefore, Daniel 12, chapter 2, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, is only speaking of Adamites, and it says, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some, by necessity in the scripture being Adamites, to everlasting shame and contempt. In other words, we're all going to be saved, but some of us may not like it. If you're an unrepentant sinner in this world, if you're a rich man that never cared for your brethren, if you're a fornicator and never repented of your fornication, well, you're going to wake up to everlasting contempt. You're going to have to live with what you did in this world and what you refuse to repent from. You're going to have to live to live with that forever. So don't think that because all Israel shall be saved, and the scripture states that in many places explicitly. Don't think that because all of us will be forgiven our errors, that there won't be some of us who are in a a, uh, a much lesser position than we thought we were getting when that day comes. And, and that's what the scripture teaches. That's what Isaiah 45, Matthew 12, um, Romans 11, where Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. He's only paraphrasing Isaiah. Jeremiah, where, where he says that all, where we, all Israel will be cleansed of all their sins. There's no exceptions. We all have the, we, all of us who have the spirit of Yahweh will live forever. Some of us are going to have everlasting disgrace and contempt because of the way we conducted ourselves here. That's clear in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. That's all I have for tonight. I'll be back here next week with Matthew chapter 20. And um, I'll be on my Christogenia chat server on Monday night. I'm going to present my paper, Sin and the First Epistle of John. And, And with that, I pray that I am able to elucidate the difference between the sinner and the person who lays traps for his brethren, or or the, the outsider who lays traps for the children of Israel. And that's who the epistle of John is actually talking about. And we will see that Monday. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.